On today's episode of the Old Souls Football Podcast, Neil and I introduce you to the American Football League, a league that only existed for maybe a decade, but had a lasting impact on pro football. Before we get into our topic of conversation today, uh, I do want to give, I'd be remiss if I didn't anyways, I want to give a shout out to one of our loyal listeners. Um, I don't know how many of them there are, but uh, 13, I believe. 13, yeah, 13, they keep coming back. Uh, We haven't lost them. Unfortunately, a lot of that 13 is close family and friends. (laughs) But um, my brother, Sean, um, is a professional wrestler, like kind of WWE style. Well, it is WWE style, AEW style. Um, but he does a lot of, um, freelance stuff for, um, different wrestling movements around the Chicago. Well, not even so much Chicagoland area. It's in Chicago could be downstate, uh, Illinois could be up in Wisconsin, Indiana. Uh, Sean had a bad accident in the ring on Saturday night. He broke his femur in three pieces. So, um, Sean took a tough injury but Sean's a tough kid and I know he's going to be listening to this podcast and his recovery. And hopefully he's thinking of a, a nice old parlay, um, maybe a bears, uh, bears first place Packers last place finish. That'll pay out maybe 10,000 to one. <laughs> Sean was definitely tough enough to play in the AFL. He was, and actually, that's what we're talking about today. The American Football League, not the Aussie Rules Football League, if we have anybody abroad listening to this. Um, the AFL was, at the time, Mike, like many leagues, um, that tried to contest with the NFL. Um, and at the time, a lot of people thought, well, this one will fail too. So let's bring you back to set the scene for you. Late 1950s America, we'll say like 1958, 1959, around there. This is, of course, the height of the post-war boom. Um, Obviously, the U.S. family is growing more than ever. Um, Families wanted to have more children because it was the idea. uh, There was an idea that um, this country had survived two world wars and they were going to bring a bunch of children into a world of freedom and prosperity. It was time to prosper for all the labor and the suffering that we went through as a country and as a world during, you know, both world war one and world war two, you had a great depression. America finally gets basically the place as the number one superpower in the world, um, economic military. So really like they're enjoying kind of the fruits of their labor. Uh, by the late fifties. And that's like you said, that's why you get all that economic development. And, and more than ever, like every, you know, so many different um, empires had their own peak as the, the world's top dog um, number one in the AP poll. Um, but America picked a great time to peak themselves because this was about when the world was starting to become even more connected than ever. Uh, television brought the world closer to each other. Um, and because Americans had so much more money to spend, um, they had more time for leisure. And leisure included things like watching TV, 
and watching sports on TV. Um, the NFL, as we mentioned in the, what was it? The, the Lombardi podcast, um, they were just at their kind of, um, uh, what's the word I want to say? Like their breakout moment in 1958 during the NFL championship game, when the Baltimore Colts beat the giants in sudden death overtime. That was the first time a lot of Americans had tuned in to watch pro football. Uh, you know, prior to that, pro football was kind of seen as like the lesser in terms of popularity, reputation wise. Like college football was number one in terms of football. And then like Major League Baseball was by far and away like America's pastime yet boxing. So like during World War II, uh, you know, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, one of the first conversations actually Roosevelt had internally with a lot of his cabinet. And then he reached out to the commissioner of baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and they had a discussion on whether it was appropriate to have baseball during a you know world war where you're sending you know young men into war to prevent the spread of the Nazis and, of course, the war in the Pacific as well. You have all of that going on in the NFL and pro football was not even in that discussion. Roosevelt yeah, they, said it was they were an impor- afterthought. Roosevelt believed, and I think he was right, that it was important for morale for the country to have baseball because that was a part of its culture. But we're not at the point like the National Football League and really pro football in general was not a part of that conversation. So in the 40s, like the NFL was kind of not I wouldn't say a joke, but it had a lot of transition. Like you had the Eagles and the Steelers during the war were actually the Steagles. Mm-hmm. And I believe the Steelers, I think, ended are the Eagles, I think, combined teams again with somebody else. I think like the Chicago a, Cardinals. Yeah, they were the uh, what was their nickname? It was uh, Cardinals and the car. Or, I can't remember. But yeah, I can't remember it either. Um, yeah. Damn. But anyway, the, uh, the the NFL really built its reputation once TV comes along. So in the forties, people don't have radios in their houses. Come 1950s, people are starting to have televisions. Number one, because like you said, they have more money. America is making things. We can't even say that now we get by half mm-hmm. of our crap from China. Like America was creating wealth and it was prospering. So like you said, people had more inter- you know time for leisure. They were buying television sets really for the first time in the NFL, as we know, is the perfect product for television. I work for a TV station. Our number one product that we sell in terms of ratings or cost per thousand, or not cost per thousand, but viewership is pro football and college football. So when you combine that and then a great championship game, like you say, in 1958, it's like a revolution. I think that's the moment pro football becomes the number one sport in America is when the Colts beat the giants in overtime. Yeah. And I think a lot of people like started to realize that baseball kind of sucked watching on TV. Um, You know, like we, and me and you have talked about this before a great sport um, to have on as background noise, but I think Americans were starting to be like, eh. well, I mean, boxing was so big on TV, but football really hit it. 
Well, yeah, well, the way you followed baseball was you followed box scores in the newspaper or you like right. just had it on in the background when you're you know on the radio. On the radio. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, for TV, it's, you know, football is more of a, com- a combat style sport. There's two sides. Yes. There's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of action and there's not a lot of games. So it's just there's this combination there's a lot of drama. T- it really, I like there. It, there's not been a product better for television than football. No, at least really, not yet. there hasn't since since television came a thing. Like you, like we said in the, in the late fifties. Watching this game along with forty five other million Americans was Lamar Hunt, who is a name that was not known so much at the time, but now we all know very well. He was the son of an oil tycoon, H.L. Hunt. Um, and Lamar Hunt himself was, of course, he had the backing of money, but he was into football. He played at Southern Methodist, um, which I kind of was wondering, was he one of the guys that would have been donating money during the Pony Express time? Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah. I um, mean, you have to think, though, with with... There was a lot of guys like that in Dallas, too. Well, college football in Texas and generally in the South, I think it happens anywhere where you have competitive people. I mean, and wealthy owners or wealthy benefactors, I should say. They got to put their they they are going to put their pride, which is their college. They're going to put that before even their investments a lot of the times. And they're going to throw money at players. And that's what that's what happened in Texas or in Texas, for sure. But even as a 22-year-old young college graduate, Hunt realized that he wanted to get in on this new growing league. Well, it wasn't new, but it was certainly a growing league. They had the opportunity. um, The NFL had kind of made it known that the Chicago Cardinals could be up for sale, at least shares of them. What Hunt wanted to do was bring the Cardinals to Dallas. And the owners were vehemently against this idea. Um, why? George Hallis said something along the lines that um, it's, it's silly to think of now, but he didn't feel like that the NFL um, should be growing past the areas it was already in, which doesn't make like, cause you can't grow if you don't venture out, yeah. but I still, yeah, it, it, George Hallis, football visionary. He was there at Ralph Hayes's dealership in Ken, mm-hmm. Ohio, when they found the league, like you can't say that George Hallis was a stupid man. Obviously that would not be correct. Football visionary was a good coach, great coach. Yeah. And I mean, he's one of the faces of the NFL in, in its history. So I, this is no disrespect, but I was amazed at the lack of foresight yeah. that he had. So really he created by being cheap basically. Cause yeah, the reason he wanted to, the, I think the main reason he wanted the NFL to stay as a Midwestern slash Northern sport yeah. was essentially to keep travel costs down, which was that really was- stupid. That was the other part of it, too. I think it was um, a northern thing. They didn't want it to spread below the Mason-Dixie line. I think that was part of it, even though that that never came up. That was just a theory I had. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I I ultimately, I I mean, George Preston Marshall, the Redskins, 
his big thing is he didn't want the, he didn't want any competition because he owned the entire Southeast. He was kind so, of an asshole. Oh yeah. Well, <laughs> giant racist and we can get it. We, yeah. we spend a whole episode talking about him, but like with Pre- uh, George Preston Marshall and the Redskins, he kind of had really kind of what the Braves have now in baseball where an entire region didn't have an NFL team. So like when mm. my dad was growing up, he was a Colts fan. My, my grandfather was a Packers fan. Uh, one of my uncles was like a Rams fan because you didn't have a team. There are a ton yeah. of people around here that are still Redskins fans because they grew up and they didn't even have the Falcons yet because it was, might've been the early sixties at that point. So mm-hmm. the whole, the whole point is they had this region locked up. So I think that was more of his angle. I honestly think Hallis's main issue was he didn't want to pay for a plane ticket to Dallas, yeah. which was crazy because and, and the thing is, he was one of the owners that back when, I guess it was, uh, was it Dan Reeves, the original owner of the Rams? Yes. Moved the t- he wanted to move the team from Cleveland, which mm-hmm. he, he ended up doing successfully. He moved, they were the Cleveland Rams, became the Los Angeles Rams. He was a visionary because he understood the league and his team grow immensely in value. Because you expand it and you make it a true national sport. Because like yes. the NFL was more than basically the state of Ohio, Pennsylvania. Illinois, Michigan, <laughs> Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Like mm-hmm. that's really what it was, and it's more than that. And then like they weren't even in Minnesota. It kind of started that way because you had like little towns like Duluth when they first started. But mm-hmm. it amazed me that. And I think Hallis like immediately regretted this because what he did was for being, and he was known to be a kind of a penny pincher. Oh yeah. As and Mike Ditka Mike, said, he threw nickels around like manhole covers. Yeah. So he, you know, he was always big on keeping player salaries down, but the thing is like, it's a lesson when you're, t- when you're overly cheap, sometimes you can't see the forest from the trees and what True. Mike Ditka did or not Mike Ditka, George Hallis, what he did was he ended up creating a bigger problem for the NFL because Lamar Hunt had plenty of money and some of his yeah. business partners did too. And they might just go and create their own thing. Yeah. And that's what they ended up having to do. The owners did offer Lamar Hunt a 49% share of the, um, of the Cardinals, but of course they weren't going to allow him to move. So it really wasn't worth it. Then he wanted majority share and he wanted to take the team to Dallas. So he got stiffed, essentially, and and by the old boys club, you might say. And on the plane ride back to Dallas, um, I believe uh, Burt Bell, who was the commissioner at the time of the NFL, very shortly there, because uh, he didn't live much longer after all this. Yeah. Um, but Burt Bell uh, had told him, he goes, well, yeah, you know, there's, there's other guys out there that want to uh, create an, uh, a, you know, or get into the NFL. There's Bud Adams and there's Harry Wiseman. And, and on the plane back, Lamar Hunt said, well, why don't I just call those guys up and we start our own league? And that's exactly what he did on the airplane. He came up with the skeleton of the league um, where he was talking about things like shared revenue that the NFL hadn't even introduced yet. He was talking about how they were going to use scheduling. 
um, he was talking about where he wanted to um, focus on acquiring players. He, he had already the names down of the people that he wanted to call to see if they were interested. It was yeah. really interesting. Do you think like the best ideas really come from like two places? Like he came up with the modern NFL when he was on a plane, maybe eating some peanuts, drinking some ginger ale. Yeah. No, pretty stewardess is walking by. It's either that or you're on the toilet. <laughs> so I was it's like, true. he could, he could have been lying. I think <laughs> I would like to think that the NFL was created while Lamar hunt was on the toilet. That's, well, that's actually theory. what we're going to go with was the, and my, I like the other question you're, you know, a huge bear fan, uh, bears fan was the 46 defense. Did buddy Ryan come up with that on the toilet? You know, it probably did that yeah. or like, you know, on the you back, can... po- like another great place is the back porch when you're having a beer by yourself, yeah. not with anybody, but he, he was probably like, oh, I could just move Doug plank to linebacker. Yeah. <laughs> call it the 46. Yeah, um, you think like Bill Belichick drafted Tom Brady like after cutting the grass and having a cold one, like <laughs> that's where, like where I get my epiphanies from, like the smell of gasoline and fresh cut grass. Yeah, but, but I yeah. it really like I agree like with you. He he came up basically with what we see today, and the biggest thing that I saw, and it's like the first thing a lot of people will say, like it's anti-capitalist because they'll say like, you know, revenue sharing, but revenue sharing is why the NFL is so successful. It's what allows Jacksonville or green Bay or new Orleans Mm -hmm. to be just as, you know, they have every chance of being successful, just like the Los Angeles Rams do the New York giants, the Dallas Cowboys, like these bigger market teams. That's what makes the NFL and that's what made it surpass baseball, in my opinion, is you yes. have these teams. And the NFL, like you said, was, you know, they were close to getting there because yeah, they recognized they were about the, two years away. Yeah. And they needed a league wide TV deal. And the only way to really come up with a fair deal is you have to split the money evenly. And they came. So that's Lamar Hunt's best idea is. And that's what makes the, the NFL is so strong because Jacksonville can be your weakest link. But the thing is like Jacksonville's not weak. Jacksonville's a completely stable franchise even though they they could be mm-hmm. poorly run and lose a bunch of games. Jacksonville has no chance of like folding. And that keeps everybody it's just a strong core and he kind of created that. Yeah, he did. One of the things that Hunt wrote down on his notepad is that he felt that the or that his new league needed a cornerstone rivalry. Meaning, when he looked at the NFL, he knew that on the East Coast, you had Giants and Redskins or Giants and Eagles. Yeah. Well, the Eagles weren't good. But um, you at least had Eagles, Steelers in Pennsylvania. In the Midwest, you had Bears, Packers. So he felt like if he wanted to make this league work, he needed to draw everybody's attention to, you got to watch this game. These two teams hate each other. So who did he call up? The guy that Burt Bell told him about, Bud Adams. Bud Adams, who was from Houston, also um, an oil tycoon of his own. He was the owner of the Astros. Um, was he, I don't know if with the Astros, or did he become the owner of the Astros? I know he was the owner of the Astros. 
I feel like they didn't come to like 1960 though. Yeah, I think it was I think it was a little bit later, but I mean yeah. the, the 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 key theme with the AFL guys and I, the reason they really succeeded is they had more money. They could yeah. they could survive. Yes. And people like Hallis, for example, his wealth came from owning the Bears and yes. an asset that appreciated over time. The Bears were worth nothing basically when he acquired them from I guess it was originally like a work team. Yeah, that he got from the state. Was it the Staley? Yeah, A. E. Staley. Yeah, so it was basically like a uh, a workers team that he inherited that he basically took control of and created an NFL team with. And over time, his wealth grew, but a lot of people still don't understand. Like, you know, it's a huge advantage for your team to be owned by, you know, a David Tepper or some somebody that comes in and has more cash than anyone right that if if he wants to go and give somebody 200 million dollars guaranteed he could do it he can write a check for it right now like because he he has the cash on hand the Hallis family i guess they're the mccaskies now they can't do that no they can't they don't have the ability to just find 200 million dollars yes their franchise might be worth you know, it's all liquid five, bi- five billion, but they'd have to start selling and they don't want to mm-hmm. do that. So that's the advantage Bud Adams had. So if you get in and same with Lamar Hunt, they could get into bidding wars for players. Yeah. And they get they have more cash. They can just like, hey, Mike Dicka. And I mean, foreshadowing here. Hey, Mike Dicka, superstar for the Bears. You want to come to Houston? Yeah. I have more cash than that the old man up there. And he could make that happen. That's why to me. It was so important for Hunt to get some of these other business people in because they could call the NFL's bluff with with the amount of money that they had. So Hunt called up Bud Adams and he invited him out to lunch, or I think he made him met him out to lunch in Houston. So the conversation wasn't like he didn't say, like, I'm I'm, you know, let's start this new league, let's go to lunch and talk about it. They met as two business people, obviously two guys that had a commonality of they were trying to get into the NFL and hunt very kind of slowly brought it up. Like he was like, yeah, you know, kind of, I have this idea and like just drew in Bud Adams closer. And finally he, he posed the big question. He got down on a knee. Yes. (laughs) Every kiss begins with K. Every kiss begins with Lamar. <laughs> um, and he, he said, I want to start this new league. I want to compete against the NFL. And I want to bring football to Texas. And that was the thing that sold Bud Adams is I want to bring football to Texas because he wanted to bring the Cardinals to Houston as well. Yeah. And so then it was off. They went back into the limousine and I think that's where Adam started to get the idea that, um, oh, he he's already got like this kind of like this wasn't like a, a spur of the moment thing, um, like so, kind of like when we came up with the idea for the podcast, we both had it in the back of our minds for years, and it was just like when we finally kind of rolled all the uh, the ideas together, we're like, well, let's just do it. I think that's kind of how that went. Lamar Hunt went out on the recruiting trail trying to find guys like him and Bud Adams. Bob Housem from Denver 
was somebody he called. Bob Housem was the son-in-law of Senator Edwin Johnson in Colorado. And he was the owner of a minor league baseball team. Not incredible money, but he had a stadium. He called up Max Winter from Minneapolis. Max Winter was the former owner of the Lakers. And he actually tried bringing the Cardinals to Minnesota. Everybody wants the Cardinals. And what's so funny about this is the Bidwells owned the Cardinals in this whole thing, right? They still own them. The old man died, I think. And they were like kind of wondering if they wanted out or not. I think that was how it went. But it's funny. Yeah. Like they, 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 it was like, it'd be like putting your house in the market. And then like 50 years later, be like, yeah, we decided to keep it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like most teams have been sold multiple times since this has happened. The Bidwells are like one of the last legacy ownerships left of like, I mean, not from the beginning. They're not like necessarily the Roonies or anything, but like, or, you know, the McCaskies, but they've been around for 70 years, basically. And they're the ones that. They were, they didn't really want any part of the Cardinals. They wanted to sell them. Yeah. And they ended up, uh, they ended up keeping them for a while. It's just kind of ironic. It is. Another name he called up was, and actually these two of these next couple names, they might sound familiar. He called up William Shea from New York. Shea from New York. Does that ring yeah. a bell? Yes, Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium. He was the owner of the football Yankees, not the New York baseball Yankees. Um, The football Yankees played in the AAFC, um, the American. Yeah, they were the ones. They they were one of the the franchises that did not make it to the NFL. Yes, the Forty Niners and the Forty Niners. I think just those two, right? Yeah, just those two were able to make it into the NFLs. Those were the only ones. Uh, so, you know, like you mentioned, Shea owned an NFL team, wanted or AAFC team, but wanted in on the NFL, but that didn't really happen. Yeah. And so he told him, he goes, why don't you call up Harry Weismer? Harry Weismer was interested. And then another name that you might recognize, Baron Hilton. Yeah. The hotel magnet, right? Yeah. The hotel magnet. And he was out in Los Angeles. So Hunt played this perfectly. He had guys ready, and actually he had perfect leverage. He called up Burt Bell, and he gave him one last chance. And he said, what do you think, expansion team, me and Bud Adams, to, like, you gave us two expansion teams in Texas. And Bell adamantly refused because, again, they weren't a part of the old boys club. Yeah. And this was like the moment that, it set it in stone. Hunt was Hunt was almost happy. He was like, "Okay, now you ask for it." Yeah. What's kind of funny though? So I don't know if you actually heard the story because this is in the book uh, Ten Gallon War," uh, which is like a book about the Cowboys and the Chiefs. So apparently, even after Bell, I think, rejects their initial proposal, you know, Hunt ends up saying, "Hey, I'm gonna go." I'm going to create the AFL with my business partners. George Hallis actually calls him or like oh, no. from, they bring him to Chicago or they bring hunt 
they bring uh Howsom and they bring Bud Adams, those three. Because those were really they were they was I guess those three were like the main three, mm-hmm. uh, especially Adams and Hunt. So those three go up to Chicago and meet at Hallis's sporting goods store. And Hallis originally was one of the very old school, like the old boys club did not want these guys in the league. But I think when he realized that they have all of these business partners that they're going to, they could actually create a legitimate league with a lot of money. He changed his tune. So suddenly like he was friendly and he said, we're going to give Bud Adams. We're going to give Lamar Hunt. We're going to give y'all new franchises in the NFL. You're going to have your team in Dallas, but Adams is going to have his team in Houston, and they were going to give Housem a large share of an existing team that he could probably eventually turn into a full ownership if he wanted. So, Hallis, I think, realized crap. Like yeah. so, I th- I think he admitted, oh, we might have made a mistake. We might have we might have fucked up here, guys. Yeah. And instead, to Hunt's credit, they say no. They they're sticking with their business partners. And now yeah. I kind of look back. I'm like, I don't think I would have said no. no. I'd have said like, <laughs> that's quite a gamble. I I would have been like, Harry Wismer, you're a great guy. <laughs> but you got season tickets. <laughs> I yeah. promise you. I'm gonna get like. I'm getting what I wanted and I'm getting, you know, an NFL team in the state of Texas. And all that took was, the, and I think they considered it, but they ended up saying, you know, it's the right thing to do. We can't do wrong by our business partners. And I respect that. But think about that decision for a second. Oh man. The AFL the, the doesn't exist. The Kansas city chiefs don't exist because there's no other team in Dallas to push out the Texans. Uh, you know, does the NFL even expand like the way it did? I mean, there's no Oakland Raiders, there's no Chargers, like it's there's just, oh, there's no Super Bowl. Like no, there's so many things just from one like little business meeting in a sporting goods store in Chicago. It's nuts, like how this stuff worked. Butterfly uh, effect. Yeah, but that's a little story from that book that okay. I thought was really interesting. Yeah, that is. I I didn't know that part. Um. Yeah. Burt Bell in 1959, then, uh, I think around the summer or maybe early fall, it definitely wasn't late fall because he died in late fall. He had to go before a Senate anti-monopoly subcommittee because um, there was a supposed monopoly. The NFL had a supposed monopoly on pro football and eh, kind of did like, you know, they, they squeezed the life out of these other leagues. And so Burt Bell called up Lamar Hunt and said, like, well, you, you're starting your own league, right? Lamar Hunt was like, no, because this wasn't like, this wasn't public knowledge at this time. And Lamar Hunt was like, yeah, I am. Well, you know, we're in the, we're in the works of it. So Burt Bell went in front of the Senate subcommittee and said, well, actually, no, we don't have a monopoly because Lamar Hunt and Bud Adams are starting their own league. And Lamar yeah, thank, Hunt said, thank God we have competition. Who <laughs> and like a year, a year before that, they were like, we don't want any competition. Yeah, we don't, we don't want it. Lamar Hunt said that was better than me announcing it because everybody would have been like, who's Lamar Hunt? Yeah. And he was like, I let Burt Bell do the talking for me. So imagine Roger Goodell saying like, Hey, the rock is starting the USFL. 
or whatever, whatever it's called, the UFL, or they change names every year. But that's like essentially Roger Goodell at the Super Bowl announcing, hey, there's a different league out there, guys, just letting y'all know. How come that hasn't happened again, I wonder? Uh, in terms of, like, like the NFL. How come, yeah, the, like, like the U.S., well, yeah. Oh, uh, well, because they never... have, there's antitrust, like, so the NFL has, like, an antitrust agreement. Um, oh. That's part of their broadcasting deal, um, where basically, like, for, for example, like, they have to play on Sundays. Like they, they, you can't have an NFL game on a Saturday because that conflicts with college. Okay. Um, and I think it allows them to negotiate as a league for their TV rights. Uh, because technically like, you know, you have all these different organizations that compete against each other. Yeah. Are technically sharing revenue, which that doesn't necessarily exist in common yeah. business. They're, pro, they're not pro separate sports, entities. Pro sports are not outside of baseball. Do not operate like the rest of American economics because, no. for the good of competition, like as consumers, we want competition. We we don't like Amazon can go out and destroy small businesses, and that's fine because that's you know some people would disagree with that, but like that they have the buying power. That's that's capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. But for the sake of American culture with sports, we don't necessarily root for that. Um, unfortunately, we don't. I think we ought to look at supporting small businesses and yes. and letting smaller entrepreneurs succeed. But this is America. That's not what we do. We care about football teams. And, we sure do. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> but anyway, like there's some antitrust exemptions that the NFL gets. Uh, I see. And a lot of this came around this time period because. The, the Congress was looking at how this, like, wait a second, like, there's only one football league, and they're not letting it expand. Yeah, and they're swallowing and, up all other yeah. leagues. Yeah, and the the biggest concern that this always has brought, and there's a reason why there's an antitrust exemption that they work in, and, and the players have to collectively bargain, for example, is because if there's only one dominant league and you're a professional football player, you're only negotiating with yeah. one league. Like you can't go to the AFL and bargain and, and bargain for your services like or come back and ask for a raise. And this was before there's free agency and all these other things. And yeah. the union had a lot less power back then. So kind of getting in the weeds here, but that's how it kind of works now compared to the way it works back then. And that's why. And I mean, they still get called before Congress. I feel like every 10, 15 years. So no, that adds context. That's good. Um, so anyways, you know, you, you know, the, the beans were out now, like Burt Bellis built the beans and he did it to help his own cause. Um, but in doing so, he's also helped the AFL. So the AFL starts to form its initial group, its initial group that we call, or now know as the foolish club, the foolish club was Lamar hunt and his team was the Dallas Texans. Bud Adams had the Houston Oilers. Baron Hilton had the Los Angeles Chargers. Um, Harry Weismer had the New York Titans. Bob Housem had the Denver Broncos. Those are the guys I already introduced. And then they called up a few other guys. 
Ralph Wilson, who was originally a minority owner of the Detroit Lions, he moved to Buffalo and took over the Bills. Yeah. Um, and actually, the the Bills' early uniforms didn't have any red in them. They, they were Detroit the Lions. Lions look. Yeah, they were Lion yeah. lookalikes essentially. They were yeah. the Lions on the other side of Lake Erie. <laughs> it's like when Paul Brown started the Bengals, which yes. we'll get to the next episode of the AFL. But they were basically the lookalike of the Browns. They were the right. same thing. Yeah. And then Billy Sullivan, who was a former sports writer and publicity director at Boston College, he took over the the Boston Patriots. Uh, Billy Sullivan and his uh, kids ran into a lot of financial issues uh, around the eighties. And actually that's how Bob Kraft took over yeah. um, the Patriots. These, a and, lot of these franchises are, there's one last one. I'll go into it. Yeah. So, and then there were eight technically owners of the Oakland Raiders. Most famously, there was F Wayne Valley. Now I mentioned earlier a name that um, did not get an AFL team and that was max winter max winter was from minneapolis if you remember yeah there's a funny story about that of course bud adams and lamar hunt didn't get their two nfl teams but max winter did max winter got the vikings the minnesota vikings and um who else? there was one other um Oh, oh, and the Cowboys. They, yeah, they, <laughs> yeah. They, yeah, they started the Cowboys. And yeah. that was basically, that was the NFL the giving the finger. middle finger to the AFL. And it's specifically Lamar Hunt because it's like, we know your team is in Dallas and that's where you want your team to play. We're going to mm-hmm. bring our league, which was better, to the NFL or to Dallas. They're going to bring the NFL to Dallas and play in the same stadium and compete for the same players compete yeah. with the same fans do the same promotions it was just a giant middle finger and it you can was. really pro- you can probably thank george Alice probably more than anybody for the creation of the cowboys because i wow. think well yeah i mean Hallis was the big guy like, george Hallis has helped so yeah. many other teams win super bowls yeah. <laughs> so the packers have won four Super Bowls, the Cowboys have won five. I'm sure he did the 49ers a favor in the 70s. I mean, he yeah. he probably told the 49ers, hey, you should go hire Bill Walsh. Like, yeah. That guy's pretty good. And the Bears won the, one. He told the Packers to go get Lombardi. So, yeah. And I'm trying uh, to think. There was, oh, no, 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 no. He told, he, he told, uh, he did tell the Cowboys when they were started that you should go get Textram. <laughs> like he literally just helps these teams. Like I, it amazed me. It's like, and to his credit, he was a visionary because he understood where the Packers were in the fifties, where the Cowboys were starting out in the sixties. These teams had to succeed for the good of the league. Yeah. And I think he cared just as much about the health of the NFL as he did the health of the Chicago bears, which back then they were still dominating. So I don't, think it necessarily felt like he he never he didn't feel like he was necessarily sacrificing but yeah you know, he i'll give him credit for that that he he did see uh, a little bit i think after he made the mistake of letting the afl kind of begin i think he understood changed like, his he, ways a little bit yeah and he i think he helped kind of keep the nfl ahead of the afl 
for the few years that it needed to. Um, going to the ra- – like, there's two teams specifically. You mentioned the ownership groups, and they were just clusterfucks. So the Raiders and the Titans were just like – Oh, yeah. Just, like, I just – amazing how they even lasted more than one season, to be honest yeah. with you. Um, the Raiders especially. So you know we'll get into Wismer in a second with the the Titans, which become the Jets. Uh, but it's it's actually kind of amazing they survive, and it makes me just respect Al Davis even more because like they have all these different owners. There's just complete chaos, and that chaos actually lasted up until 2005. I didn't realize this, but Al Davis wasn't the majority owner of the of the Oakland Raiders, the Los Angeles Raiders, until 2005. Really? Yeah, he was the <laughs> he was not the majority owner. He had control under California state law because they had signed some backroom deal. They had him as the the basically the operator, the owner slash operator of the franchise, but he did not have a majority stake in the Raiders. And like he got sued, but like he kept them out. Al Davis, like he is a Raider. Oh my god! Like he basically oh, yeah. took that team, and <laughs> eventually now the Davis is, or I guess it's uh, what's what's his son's name? I'm Mark. Like Mark Davis. Basically, he owns the Raiders now. Yeah. But like when they he were has winning some of the, the least Super- amount of cash flow though in yeah. the NFL, I think. Well, because he's a legacy owner. Like he was his his dad was just a football coach. It wasn't like he wasn't an oil tycoon or anything. But right. That shows you like of course there were Lamar Hunts and Bud Adams. They had they had all the oil money. Like specifically Lamar Hunt's dad made a joke to the press that, you know, Lamar's team will fold when he runs out of cash in a hundred years. Like he could literally operate the Texans slash Chiefs for a century. Yeah. Or he'd probably go under. And he he didn't foresee them getting Patrick Bobs either. No. <laughs> so it's it's worked out very nicely for Hunt, but not everybody was in that situation. Like the Raiders and specifically the Titans slash Jets, and you'll get to them in a second. It's amazing that this league lasted the first two years. Like it's kind of a miracle that it held on, to be honest, because it, it did. Like, yeah. Yeah. These ownership groups outside of like the main first two, like a lot of chaos. And some of the venues they played in were just like, oh, oh turnover. Oh, they were God. high school stadiums. Like, yeah, they were. Yes. Yeah. So that's where that's yeah. what Houston played in. Yeah. So, but you, they were foolish. And so, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was letting you go. So, um, yeah, the and then I I uh it it really came to fruition and we'll talk more about 1962 in a little bit but um 1962 was really when the roost came to roast for these two clubs um the raiders were um not to jump the gun but we like otherwise we wouldn't talk about the raiders and the titans um yeah. because they 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 literally had nothing to write home about the 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 raiders had won three games they their first year 1960 they were all right i think they were on 500 but in 61 and 62 they won three total games and in 62 they won the last game of the season like they almost went winless yeah and the the actually the afl owners kind of stepped in and it was almost like a coup d'etat and they were just like yeah we 
Al Davis over there um, in, I think he was in Los Angeles. I think he was with the Chargers. He was with the Chargers, uh, yeah. Yeah, like you need to go take this thing over. And he did, and it was the only thing that saved them. The Titans, um, well, let me just skip ahead real quick to where I talked about them. They uh, they played in the polo grounds, and as storied of a venue as the polo grounds were, um, by 1960, it was not really a you know, famed ballpark at, anymore. Um, no. of course the Dodgers were already gone, uh, at that point. Um, so, uh, they, they were drawing like the, the first two years they did okay in terms of, I mean, none of the teams did great in terms of drawing attendance, but in 1962, they drew 36,000 people all season. <laughs> so that's about 3000 fans per game. Yeah. So I mean, they did horrible. The, Harry um, Harry Wismer had the fans sit in the and in, in both end zones, so that yeah. when the TV camera, like when a team would score a touchdown, it would look like that there's fans in the ballpark, but those are the only fans that were there. Um, yeah. And meanwhile, and across the, I guess they're across the Hudson. I don't think it's the Hudson, but basically over in the Bronx. Yes the giants are drawing 80,000 people and see, that was the problem like they were, they were going up against the giants who were a stalwart of the NFL. And even the Raiders were going up against the 49ers who had a, a good backing themselves um, because yeah. they had just won a championship, maybe three or four years before the Raiders even took over. But um, so anyways, let's get into the first we're going to talk about the first three seasons of the AFL, um, 1960, 61 and 62, 1960, Joe Foss was picked as the commissioner of the AFL. Um, there wasn't a whole lot about Joe Foss out there other than that. He was, um, also somebody that shared the idea, um, or Hunt's vision of shared revenue. Um, I he almost was a really look, charismatic, good-looking yeah. guy. I kind of look at him as Lamar Hunt's like puppet. Uh, where yeah, I think really that's all he was. Yeah. Lamar Hunt was the de facto commissioner, and you, you'll see that when we get to the merger in a couple of episodes. But like, and I mean that technically is the job of a commissioner is you basically are the, the talking head on behalf of the ownership group, and Lamar Hunt represented the ownership group for the most part. Yes. Um, the AFL lands their first big star. I mean, talk about a splash right away. This saved the league, in my opinion. It, it did. I mean, thank God they did this. They got Heisman Trophy Award winner Billy Cannon. A new league took the most exciting, the best player from college that year. Um, but it wasn't easy. There was a huge contract dispute with the LA Rams. Because Billy Cannon was drafted number one overall in the NFL draft, but the NFL um, kind of held their draft in secrecy. They didn't tell anybody that they were holding the draft. So there was really like, there was no publicity. And like, I don't think um, uh, they actually had to go to court. The, the Houston Oilers had to go to court. I, I forgot to mention that part. The Houston Oilers were the team that got Billy Cannon. Yeah, and these back in these days, to to court with yeah, the Rams. Yeah, back in these days, 
all the top college players, really any player that was eligible for the draft would actually get picked by both leagues. Mm-hmm. So yes. it's and like Mike Dicko was drafted by the, uh, he was drafted by the Oilers and the bears. So, yes. but you talk about that lawsuit a little bit in terms of how Billy Cannon's situation went down. So Billy Cannon, because uh, the AFL actually was not under uh, any idea that Billy can but like Billy Cannon just looked like a free agent to them. Um, so they, um, they went and signed him, but Adam signed him. He gave him, I think like something $30,000 up front, which was, I think two or three times as much as the Rams gave him. Um, and because of the whole draft and secrecy thing, um, the court actually awarded Billy to sign with the team that kind of he wanted. And obviously he went for the money as he probably should have. Um, so that was a massive, massive first victory for the AFL. I mean, for a new league to dupe the NFL like that, the NFL was clearly having a draft in secrecy. They were, they knew what they were up against. I think right away, uh, whether yeah. they wanted to explain it or not. It's so shady by the way. Cause like what it oh, showed yeah. is basically like, we're going to manipulate the board to make sure that we get the players in the situations that best help the league. And that's a dangerous precedent to set because like if imagine if that happened like now, for example, like let's say instead of Chicago, you know, being number one, let's say Jacksonville's on the clock, right? Mm-hmm. And Jacksonville doesn't have Trevor Lawrence. So they have like Caleb Williams, this generational superstar. And the league's like, nah, 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 nah. You know, ratings were down this year. We can't have this college star go to Jacksonville. We need him to go to Chicago or we need him to go to New York because they need Violent a quarterback. Me. Yeah. But a lot of people be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yes. You can't do that because, like, obviously, that's not number one, that's not fair. Number two, it like completely taints the image of um, purity that you have in terms of competition. Um, it, it it really it, it it could hurt the reputation. I'm just surprised that that doesn't get brought up more because like that's shady as crap that the NFL yes. did that. And now, I mean, now everything's disclosed and competition's full, so I don't think we ever have to really worry yeah. about that. But you you mentioned Billy Cannon though, and I just want to give him a few. Uh, you know, I think he's number one. I think he's a Hall of Fame player. He's yeah. not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's a college football Hall of Famer. He won the Heisman at LSU. And he was, up until Joe Burrow, he was the only Heisman winner from LSU. But he was obviously the number one pick in the draft, really both drafts for a reason. And he was a complete game changer when he got to Houston. There was actually a game he had in 1961 against the Titans. Listen to the stat line. 216 rushing yards. 114 receiving yards on five receptions, 43 kick return yards. Oh my God. Five touchdowns. <laughs> so that's total 330, uh, 373 scrimmage yards, which was a record up until Glenn Melbourne of Denver broke it in 95, which was former bear. All, yeah. And almost all of his were punt return yards, like at least two thirds of it. 
for fantasy bros out there, that would be <laughs> 68 points in PPR points for oh Billy Cannon. It's the greatest offensive performance of all time by any player. Like that's like your 99 overall doing that in Madden. Like that would be like playing, their stat line. <laughs> it's like he's playing on rookie mode. And yeah. The most impressive thing to me is like because when I saw oh 373 scrimmage yards, I'm like, yeah, but a hundred of those are probably kick return yards. No, only 43. That means like yeah, he basically returned a couple of kicks. Literally all of it was from running and receiving. He was real football. He was unbelievable. He, to me, he should be in the Hall of Fame for what he did. I, I think he legitimized the league in its infancy, and that's what allowed the Oilers. That's what allowed the Chiefs, or I guess they were the Texans back then, the Chargers, to gain some popularity. And it allowed because ultimately, if it's only three teams surviving, that's not good enough. Like those teams no. would have just folded anyway, even though they had money. Like it kept the whole league and their status legitimized and it got people yeah. watching the games on ABC, which was so big. Um, it was like, yeah, like I said, it was a massive, massive victory that they pulled that out because he should be, yeah, he should be in the hall of fame just for he what really he really should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the rest of the draft, the 1968, the NFL draft was weird that year. The AFL draft was kind of weird too. Uh, nobody knows the order, but they do know this. The names are drawn. That's pretty shady. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's all. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, uh, like I'm sure it's it's uh interesting that Bud Adams, one of the two biggest owners of the league, gave away with uh Billy Cannon. But yeah, we do know this. The names were drawn from a box. So when you uh, when we start getting into draft season, you know it's combine week right now, and you see like these draft rooms, these war rooms in a couple months and they have names everywhere and, and computers that go from the, the floor to the ceiling and they're all touchscreen. Just think the AFL started because they were like Mike Smith um, to the Raiders. Lamar, <laughs> Lamar Hunt literally pulled out like one of his wife's shoe boxes <laughs> Yeah. And said, okay, here, we'll put all the players' names in here, and then we'll decide the future of pro football. It, it's, it reminds me when we, uh, at my family parties in the summer, uh, when we have like a bags tournament, and we literally like will write each other's names on pieces of paper, and somebody takes a hat, and like somebody pulls out the name, like, oh, Brian and Neil, you guys are partners today, or whatever. Um, yeah. There were a couple... Um, Hall of Famers that were taken in the draft. Um, Jim Otto, who was a legendary center for the Raiders. Stud. When you think about it, he went through some bad years. It's, so that's uh, I always think that's cool when a guy can live beyond those bad years on a team. His rookie card's really funny just because like the Raiders weren't the silver and black yet. They were the black and gold. Black, yeah. It, yeah. If him and like right. Tom Flores was their quarterback, it's just like it's bizarre to look at. Yeah, it. yeah. Um, Johnny Robinson, who was a defensive back for Dallas and then eventually Kansas City. Ron Mix, who was an unbelievably great offensive lineman uh, for the Chargers, but he was actually drafted by Boston. Um, and then we were saying that players are drafted by both leagues. Uh, Cardinals legend Larry Wilson uh, was drafted by Buffalo. Um, but anyways, yeah. 
Um, in the early summer, around June, the AFL signed a five-year deal with ABC. So they had a broadcasting right. This was another huge step for them. And actually, ABC brought a new lens for how we people viewed professional football. They would, a lot of times, um, they wanted to make the players more personalized. So they would bring the cameras on the sideline. They would show the guys on the bench. They'd get close and personal. Like, you know, you could see the sweat. You could see the five o'clock shadow on the guys. That was yeah. things the NFL didn't do. Um, but they, th- this was their way of bringing, you know, the game into your living room closer to you. Um, Can you imagine? They also had, go ahead. Can you imagine Lamar Hunt if he were alive today and he could see Scott Hansen hosting NFL Red Zone? <laughs> oh, I know. And like the the viewing experience now compared, like the fact that supers and lower thirds, just any type of graphic to showcase what's yes. going on in a game and what that, player did what. The fact that that was like revolutionary. I didn't know that was what th- that was called. Supers. Yeah, supers. Yeah, that's what it. The supers, or I like to just say lower thirds, and I work in okay. TV and I say lower thirds. But to me, like the fact that those were revolutionary concepts, and yeah, you don't think about them. Like I don't, I, I have trouble. We were ta- watching the 1981 NFC title game. Like it's hard to watch a game without a score bug. And exactly, the, sc- <laughs> the score bug was really more mid 90s. Like, yeah, 94. watching football. Yeah, and like it was just a completely it's it, it's amazing how far the game has gone. And like I watched Truly. a lot of a, and you go back and watch AFL highlights of like the early 60s. It's not the same. Like and even NFL films was like that you know Steve and Ed Sable don't really do their thing until like what 61, 62. 62 I think, yeah. Yeah, so watching like the 1960 AFC or AFL championship game. It's not easy. Is, it's like watching something from the forties. Like <laughs> yeah. you're, it's, it's like, watching, like, it's like watching civil war footage. <laughs> yeah. Is, you're like, you're watching a uh, Babe Ruth swing a bat. Like it's not that, not that much different. And it's all black and white, like putting together shorts for this, this podcast is going to be tough just because like finding Billy Cannon highlights is going to be like, a daunting yeah. task yeah, and he's uh, that that's blur okay. right there <laughs> yeah i'll probably just tell people like that was definitely the game that i'm referring to they won't know a difference but like, <laughs> yeah, no. but like the but it's amazing how far the league has gone and, and really television and sports in general that yeah. i mean i can pull up i can watch four games at one time i can i can mm-hmm. get stats on my phone within seconds mm-hmm. and you know, you're, but the AFL kind of started that because the NFL was stubborn as hell. Like yep. where they were like somebody like George Hallis would have been like, no, <laughs> we don't want to put boom mics on the field. <laughs> yeah. like, like we don't want that. Uh, the dang. What's thing. a boom like, mic. <laughs> yeah. That's what the boomers want. Like because back then <laughs> boomers were probably like the young generation. Like, yeah. Right. Those well, not the really. They were, want. yeah, they're not even really. Cause they were what they're, I guess they were the boomers. I guess we're late forties. So these guys, they, they were the yeah. kids at the that kids, point. They were yeah. teenage. Damn kids. Yeah. Um, the first yep. game of the AFL was played on a Friday night. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting because this year, the NFL is going to have a Friday night 
it's not the opener, but it's uh, yeah. opening weekend. Yeah, but it, um, I don't think the antitrust rules are. I don't, I don't think they matter because I think the game is except Brazil. So that's the NFL is trying to get around that now. So. Holy God! Yeah. Um, played September 9th, nineteen sixty. The Denver Broncos. I wrote New England Patriots. It's the Boston Patriots, thirteen to ten. Uh, final score. Uh, Broncos were winners. Al Carmichael of Denver, who's in the Packers Hall of Fame, uh, yes. scored the league's first touchdown. He was probably the only. Like one of the few highlights of the Packers in the 1950s. Really? And yeah, because that was like Denver was really the end of his career. Uh, yeah. Like when he went to the AFL. And that's where, like, and that's what was cool about a new league is that these older players that, you know, were at the end or, or, and a lot of times, like in George Blanda's case, needed a fresh start or Lynn yeah. Dawson's case needed a fresh right. start. Who they, we talk about later. Yeah, so they needed to, you know, it, it opened up more opportunities. But yeah, uh, Carmichael, he had most of his, you know, most of his success in Green Bay for his career. But like I said, he was probably the only highlight of the 50s. Let, we've talked about the Packers in a previous episode of the Lombardi Packers. The 50s version of that team was, it was bad. Um, but yeah, and then... Uh, you talk about Gino Capaletti yet? No, I haven't mentioned him. Gino Capaletti, Patriots legend. He actually had the first points on a field goal. Um, uh, the first points of the league's history, I should say. Yeah, on a field goal. And did you um, know that he's one of the uh, he's one of the three players in history to lead the league in scoring five different times? Really? Yeah. No kidding. And Stephen Goskowski, another Patriot. I'm, yep. Gino Capaletti, which he led the AFL. So, yeah. Yeah. Pounce. Who's the other one? Um, I don't know. Don Hudson. Ah, Jesus. He always right. set that up. <laughs> well, do you know who... I mean, I'll do a video on Don Hudson, but I'm just going to say it right now. Top five player all time. Oh, yeah. Like, I'd say so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Don, uh, he did everything. I know the episode's not about him, but that shows you how good Gino Capaletti was because he was not just an offensive. He played defense too, but he he was a kicker. Like he was Mister yeah. Utility, and he was Mister Patriot for a long time. Like he was, yeah. Like before the, John Hanna, yeah. And even when John Hanna like was dominating the league, like. And after after he retired, like Gino Capaletti would like broadcast Patriot games. Yes, like the fans loved him. He was like one of the faces of the franchise up until the Brady era. Do you know who his son-in-law is? I don't. Tom Waddle. Oh, really? In Chicago? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. He married uh, Gino's daughter. Huh. So that's, that's crazy. Yeah, I know great bloodline actually all like tom had like five daughters and four of them played like college sports so like i mean great bloodline hey when is the when is the son due for the draft <laughs> yeah. you get him on the bears that would be a perfect guy for the bears yeah. attendance was not wildly successful for the new league uh no kidding average just over sixteen thousand fans per game while the nfl was at about forty thousand. 
Um, Dallas and Houston, not surprising, were the only ones that averaged over 20,000. And I think they were like just at 20,000. And, and here's another, like, I, I don't want to pick on George Hallis, but short sighted version of George Hallis, I got to come back and just burn you again. <laughs> Two different teams drew really well in Dallas or, or, or because the Cowboys drew fans and the Texans drew fans. Just imagine if you had one team, one team. Yeah, they would have because you wouldn't have had everybody split the there. city in half. Everybody Lamar would have been, Hunt yeah. used to do uh, a because the Cowboys used to play on Friday nights a lot. And Lamar Hunt used to do a uh, a kind of a promotion for fans that they would get free admission on Sunday to the Texans games. Yeah. If they brought their ticket stub from a high school football game on yeah. Friday night. <laughs> oh, they were promotional geniuses and you had to be oh, in the NFL. Were. Like you, you couldn't just like the NFL, the Cowboys plan was like, Hey, you know, we got the Cowboys or we got the bears coming. We, we got the Packers coming. We got, you know, the giants are coming to town. Like they didn't have the, the AFL can't be like, Hey, we got the Raiders coming to town. Like that <laughs> wasn't a draw. Patriots. Yeah. No, no one cares about those teams. So they had, they had so much going on promotionally and the whole league did that. Like, yeah, you know, we'll talk about the jets a little, you know, in the next episode when they become the jets, but right. The, my, I think my favorite cheerleader name I've ever heard. I don't know the current Houston Texans cheerleaders, but the Tex ands. Oh my oh, god, that was funny. Yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. I was, I know, I was like, like, "Oh, I get it." <laughs> that's that like Chef's kiss right there. Like, but they were promotional geniuses, and you had to be to to get fans into the stands at an AFL game because in oh, the yeah. first couple of seasons, the football and most of the league wasn't really great. No, um, that year, nineteen sixty, the player and rookie of the year was Abner Hayes. Um, of the Dallas Texans. Um, he was from North Texas State and HBCU. We'll talk about HBCUs uh, probably more in the next episode uh, and how big of a role they played in the AFL. He yeah. averaged 6.9 yards a touch, and he had 12 total touchdowns. Pretty damn good for a rookie. Do you think he has a case for the Hall of Fame? I think a lot of these guys do. I really yeah. do. Yeah, three-time All-AFL, which yeah. they're only, what, nine, 10 seasons of the AFL. Uh, yeah. And to me, it, like I want to highlight the importance of the early stars in this league. Like the, the players that were stars in the early sixties kept the league alive. And I think that means a lot. Oh, certainly. Um, and, uh, but yeah, he, I, the, I, I think like that he should be in, in the senior category. If yeah, I haven't looked and I didn't look and see if he was like one of the, you know, the final ever. Yeah. Uh, but he deserves it. Yeah, he, he, they ought to look into that. Um, the difference in play style from the NFL was clear from the start. AFL teams averaged to pass seven more times a game than NFL teams, and they were only running it two times less than the NFL counterparts. So that technically tells you that they had faster pace, but fast football isn't always good football, as we might know. No. NFL averaged more yards per play, not by a huge stretch, but it, it got bigger uh, over the first couple of years. Um, and they had less turnovers per game. So, um, but also kind of a weird thing. There are sack numbers for the AFL. 
we don't have that for the NFL until I think like 67 or something like that. The NFL um, is like so frustrating in terms so of so goddamn like, behind. Yeah, well, like the two point conversion, college football adopts yes. that in like 58. It's like 94 before the, the NFL adopts it. You have, you know, like you mentioned, this just recording sacks, not that hard. No, the AFL was doing it. And then like, it they the called NFL it a sack. It wasn't like yeah. they were like, oh my God, the defensive end tackled the quarterback? Is that yeah, legal? And then, yeah. And then players, like, people don't even think Deacon Jones, like, they kind of forget about him. Like, players yeah. like that that played in the 60s that were such great pass rushers. And, oh, his sack, when when Pro Football Reference finally released those, he, yeah. he had like three of the top 10 sack seasons of all time. Yeah. <laughs> and like, unbelievable. Yeah. They're just, they were so far behind in, they're the way they look at it, but the quality of the football, the NFL still so much better than the AFL. And it really, to me, it, be, it came down to the quarterbacks because outside of like, you know, Jack Kemp, Lynn Dawson, George Blanda, like outside of those three AFL quarterbacks, were not not very good. No. Um, and though you could see it in kind of the efficiency numbers, but the yeah. NFL, the NFL had better quarterbacks because yeah, they did. You know, you had Uninus, you had Star, White Tittle, uh, White Tittle. Although he was at the end of his rope, Sonny Jurgensen, young Sonny Jurgensen in the early '60s. Like those Mm -hmm. were, those were the QBs, and uh, you know, because you don't get Namath until like the mid '60s, right? uh, In the AFL, and that changes the conversation. Definitely. People that say like the AFL is just as good as the NFL, that is true once you get to the late sixties. Yes. Right in the now. Early, in the early sixties, it's not. No, the, the NFL was a much better league. Uh, so people like Lombardi, people like Hallis that said that, they were they were correct. They uh, were. But however, I, I will say the AFL was more fun because they did pass more. They did revolutionary things like we just talked about with, you know, the broadcasting, the way they demonstrated the game uh, uh, for TV. They had more, you know, fun uniforms. You know, they were kind yeah. of football for well, the younger crowd. They had different uniforms. Yeah. Yeah. The Broncos <laughs> were awful. Those. Yeah. yeah. What is it? Yellow and brown. Yeah. Mustard and shit brown. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Who came up with that? Oh, God. But, uh, but speaking uh, of Denver, but like they had fun things going on for them. So Denver at the end of the 60s season, they have the uniform burning ceremony, <laughs> which is just amazing. And it's like yeah. right after the game, by the way. So you have a bunch of fans start a giant fire. It's like disco like, demolition. Yes, that's <laughs> freaking awesome. Like if if the White Sox were a football team, they're definitely in the AFL. They would have done that, yeah. Yeah, yes, and well, actually, Bill Vec, who was a he wasn't, an, but he was a a friend of Lamar Hunt. Bill Vec, who had so many great and funny promotions through the years, eventually became the owner of the White Sox. Oh wow! There you so, go. There you go. He, yeah. he and he was probably more fun than Jerry Reinsdorf. But, oh yes, as uh, he's been in the news a lot lately here in Chicago. Uh, 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 but my my favorite AFL moment of all time when it came to just like Twitter, if this happened like on X now, it would be the most insane moment ever. Is when a Patriots fan at the end of a game against the Texans at uh in Boston, he runs onto the field 
and the, all the fans think that time's out and uh, or the game's over, uh, time ran out. But the referees say, no, one more play. And the referees are wearing the, the orange uniforms, right? Mm-hmm. And no, so the crowd, like, gets, you know, they, they get off the field and they're all standing right up on the sideline. I'm like, it's like we're watching the N1 mixtape. <laughs> From like 2003. <laughs> yeah, like the professor. And <laughs> this Patriots fan, like, they snapped the ball. I guess Lynn Dawson was the one throwing. I can't remember. But like, he throws the pass and the fan deflects it away and they call it incomplete. It was playing linebacker. Yeah. A guy in like a, 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 the one of the players on a the Chiefs, one, one of the players on the Texans goes up to Hank Stram after the game, like, coach, you won't believe it. But a guy in some khakis ran onto the field and he knocked the ball down. So, and I think uh, Hank Stram even said, like, be nice to get somebody we haven't seen defense like that in the AFL all year. Like, <laughs> so like, See, like yeah. I, if I wanted, up. like, if I wanted, like, if you and your buddies like wanted to go out, have a couple of beers, like, and get kind of Mac Championship type vibes. Yeah, early '60s AFL would have been for you. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it gets much better as the decade goes on. It becomes a really legitimate football league. Uh, because of the money they're willing to spend, but those early days were kind of rough. Oh, yeah. So Houston ended up winning the first AFL championship uh, in 1960. As we said earlier, they played their games at a high school. Um, Bud Adams was a really smart guy. Um, He knew that the league would be deficient in one area right away. He knew the defensive backs would suck. So he signed George Blanda, um, who had been with the Bears, but he had retired for a year to head his offense. Um, The passing game that they had was far and away better than everyone else's in the league. Now, you can't compare it to what there are nowadays. So don't go back and be like, well, actually, he threw 22 interceptions. Shut the hell up. Um, Only Johnny Unitas in the NFL threw more touchdowns than George Blanda. So that's pretty damn good. It was still the dead ball era. Yes. Yes. Um, Their opponent for their first ever AFL title game had given Houston one of their four losses on the season. Houston went into the game uh, 10 and four. The Chargers were the team that they played and they had beaten Houston 24, 21, seven weeks prior. The Chargers were a formidable opponent. They had scored. This is wild. 184 points over their final four games. They scored 46 points a game. Pretty good. And a lot of that is because their head coach was the legendary Sid Gilman. And he had a pretty good staff under him. He had Al Davis. And then he had Chuck Knoll, um, who was the defensive line coach. Um, The Chargers were prone to being boom or bust. They had three games where they scored three or less points. So the last amazing average six. How are you that like hot or cold? And yeah, yeah, I I, I didn't understand that fact. It's like, how can you have 184 points in four uh, in four games, but then have three games where you score three or less? Like that's one of those feats that you won't ever see again. But these are the two teams I'm confident and really the Oilers, but these are the two teams that are in the early sixties are the teams that could compete 
in the NFL. Like oh, they yeah, wouldn't definitely. win the NFL. They would not beat the Packers. They would not they, have beaten. They wouldn't the go Eagles. winless. Yeah, because the Eagles won the uh, they won the championship in '60, but yes. they 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 wouldn't go winless. They would probably be middle of the pack. And you specifically mentioned Gilman. Like he was he was ahead of his time. He was the first to study film, uh, which at the time no one else did. And he was kind of the first to start doing that. He was the first to hire a strength coach, which, you know, now is common practice. The strength coaches all have like staffs under them now. Uh, he was basically the modern, uh, the, the father of the modern forward pass. You watch all these 80s teams with Al Davis, you know, basically picking all the players. He got a lot of his football knowledge from Sid Gilman. Um, yeah. And fun fact, and Belichick actually men uh, mentions this in Full Color Football, is he lost the head coaching job. Like, he was the finalist. It was one of the finalists for the head coaching job at Ohio State. Who beat him out? Uh, at Ohio State, it would have been Woody Hayes, right? Yeah, that's crazy. Like, to me, oh, yeah. is you go from, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust, which is Woody Hayes and what he's known for. Like, we're going to run it up the middle every play versus yeah. Sid Gilman was revolutionizing football. Like I couldn't think of two more contrasting candidates <laughs> and Woody Hayes and Sid Gilman. And both of them won a ton. Like Woody Hayes yes. won a ton. So I'm not bashing Woody Hayes or anything, but it's, it's amazing the difference between the two. Uh, but he, that chargers team was, it was fun. Jack Kent was dealing. He actually won first team, uh, all AFL over, mm -hmm players like Blanda over players like Dawson who are hall of famers. Um, so, it, and Hemp actually later becomes a Republican congressman. who was very influential uh, during the 1980s and did a lot of like fiscal policy with Ron. Oh, Reagan. that didn't work out. Yeah. But, <laughs> no, in the, in the eighties, it was a good time to be. A Republican. It was, yeah. 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 Well, yes. But uh, the idea, the theory wasn't yeah. backed up. Well, it depends on it who was, you it yeah, it depends on who you ask. Yeah. But anyways, uh, um, Sid Gilman and Frank Leahy, um, who was the GM for the Chargers, um, they were going up against Lou Rimkus, who was the head coach of the um, the Houston Oilers. And there's kind of an angle with that because Lou Rimkus had actually worked for uh, Sid Gilman with the Rams. Uh, just a couple years prior to that, because uh, that's where uh, Gilman was before he took the job with the Chargers. Um, and Frank Leahy was a coach of Lou Rimkus at, uh, at Notre Dame. So both of them knew that. So that was, that would be, you know, if we're talking about like a Super Bowl or something like that, that would be a massive storyline going into it. Um, the Oilers were six and a half point favorites, despite, the Chargers winning the more recent um, game between them meeting. There was 32,000 fans in attendance. It was held in Houston. There was a rotation of AFL versus, uh, or excuse me, Eastern Division versus Western Division. Um, and that year, it just happened to be an Eastern Division. So Houston was the one who held the title game. Blanda had a magical day. Um, he threw three touchdowns um, and he kicked a field goal. He threw for over 300 yards. And actually, if you watch like the film, 
he was throwing a couple seeds out there. Like he had a really good game, but he he did not win MVP. That went to rookie Billy Cannon. Um, and actually Billy Cannon, he scored on a wheel route. And I don't know why I thought about this, but it reminded me of the Drew Brees to Reggie Bush wheel route touchdown in the 2006 NFC championship. And I think it was like the same amount of yards too. Um, I think yeah, it was like maybe, an 80, 88 yarder. Maybe Sean Payton was watching some Sid Gilman tape. He might've. Or not Sid Gilman. Uh, it was, yeah. Lou Rimkus. Lou, yeah. Lou Rimkus, excuse me. Uh, but I, it was, that was actually a really fun game. Like the AFL first season, absolutely like. Oh, massive success. Six, Success versus expectations, absolutely. Yes, but absolutely. We go to sixty. We go to sixty-one, and it's kind of all systems go because yeah, everybody all- was retained. Um, there was no. They didn't have. Unfortunately, they didn't have like the the burst um, that uh, they might have been hoping for to to gain more fans. Um, really the only thing that changed in the, uh, AFL that year in the off season was the chargers moving to San Diego, um, from LA only to move back uh, a few years ago. Um, a couple big names were drafted in the AFL draft that year. Mike Ditka was drafted by Houston. Bob Lilly was drafted by Dallas, the Texans. Herb Adderley was drafted by the New York Titans and Fran Tarkenton was drafted by the Boston Patriots and none of them played for the AFL. I, <laughs> I think Bob Lilly may be the greatest draft pick to never play for the league. Bob uh, Lilly, the, the only guy like we talked about during our Hall of Fame episode, the Hall of Fame meter that Pro Football Reference has, the only guy that's going to ever catch Bob Lilly on that is Aaron Donald. That's how dominant Bob, or Bob Lilly was. Bob Lilly is arguably top three defensive player of all time, I would mm-hmm. say. And what makes it sting worse is he's drafted by the da- Dallas Texans or the you know Kansas City Chiefs in yeah. modern tongue. And it makes it sting worse that he gets drafted by the Cowboys. So like, yeah, he didn't even leave town. Known. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a legendary cowboy. I would argue he's probably the best cowboy of all time mm-hmm. and he could have been a texan but he did not he he went to the cowboys and did what mm-hmm. he did and that that had to stink for lamar hunt for sure oh god yeah but the texans they cleaned up the the dallas texans they they weren't like they were finishing above 500 but they weren't you know competing for championships in the first two years but they were building something they had an incredible draft class. Jim Tyre, who was an offensive tackle, please go back and look at his resume. This is a man that needs to be in the Hall of Fame. He made six All-Pro teams. I don't know how he's not in the Hall of Fame. Jerry Mays, who was the defensive end, and EJ Holub, who was a or Holub, it might be, who was a linebacker. These are all guys that were a part of a few AFL championship teams and two teams that made the Super Bowl. Um, yeah. The, 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 this was, they were putting something together. They were a young team, but um, it like, it really started to, to go well for them. Yeah. And uh, I think that that kind of built, like you said, it, it kind of built the foundation of the Super Bowl one and the Super Bowl four teams. Yeah. Uh, 
in Kansas City, or I guess when they became Kansas City, they were still trying to chase Houston. They were still trying to chase, you know, the early Chargers' success. Yeah, yes. Dallas. They they did end up winning a championship in '63, but um, it, it was '63 or '62. Yeah, yeah. And then they sw- they moved to Kansas City in '63, but they they were still trying to find that dominance because they had a lot of resources. So honestly, they should have been one of the top teams. And this draft class kind of helps cement their run all the way in, in, into the early seventies. Um, but that, that was a really good draft class for them. Attendance picked up a little bit, only about a thousand people. So they went from 16,000 to 17,000 people. The NFL matched the AFL's 14-game season. So like we said, the NFL was watching. They were keeping tabs on this league. And that actually stayed that way until 1978 when they went to the 16-game season. And then that was true until only, you know, two years ago or whatever. Houston and San Diego were at 27, over 27,000 people, though. So the average was around 17,000, but that was getting brought down by some poor teams like we mentioned earlier, the Raiders and the Titans. Um, Buffalo attendance might have been the most impressive, though. For a team that was under 500, they averaged nearly 20,000 fans per game. And they laid the foundation of what Bill's Mafia is now because even back then, like, their fans were probably the rowdiest in the AFL. Yeah. They, you know, they weren't necessarily breaking tables, but they were, like, drinking... Like, they weren't drinking yeah. out of a bowling ball. <laughs> yeah, but they were still partying in the stands. Like they, I think yeah. they said they were bringing grills into the stands. Like, oh, that's awesome. It, yeah, it was a, like that's a vibe. Like early oh, yeah. '60s Bills games. That that sounds like a lot of fun. I don't think I could hang with Bills Mafia now. Like, I, I'm not that hardcore. Uh, like, you know, a one-time people, thing I think for me. But I think yeah. that would. <laughs> I could maybe do Bills Mafia in its present day form if I'm like 20, but yeah. not when I'm, I'm 30 now. I ain't doing that. <laughs> but uh, yeah. And and what was kind of interesting and you, you wrote it in your notes here, but I want to kind of mention is even though the AFL was kind of seen as like the more explosive pass, happy, you know, progressive league. Right? Yeah. The NFL still averaged more yards per play. Yeah. The AFL had the higher pace of play, but they were passing more and running less. The NFL was the higher quality league still. Yeah. And they, and I think a lot of the gap actually grew this year. Yeah. And you have to think too, like how much was it even, it was, it was probably even worse than the fact that like, if you took away the chargers and the Oilers, like, Offense was probably really like I it made me think like the Raiders games must have been unwatchable. Oh in their yeah. I it would have been like watching yeah. the Tampa Bay Vipers from the XFL a couple years ago. Yeah. And really like the only teams in 60 and 61, like I said earlier, that could probably hang in the NFL are the Chargers and the Oilers. Yeah, um, the, the Chargers moved into a newly refurbished Balboa Stadium in San Diego. They were a more complete team than 1960. The offense generated the headlines, um, of course, with being coached by Sid Gilman. But the defense was actually the dominant piece of the team. The heart of the defense was the original fearsome foursome, not the one in uh, the L.A. Rams, the San Diego Chargers. Ron Neary, Bill Hudson, 
the rookie of the year, Earl Faison, who had a short but fantastic career, and Ernie Ladd, who also had a great career. Three rookies coached by, and I brought him up earlier, Chuck Knoll. Um, the Chargers started 11-0 and that year and had their perfect season interrupted by Houston. Yeah, the AFL Championship – oh, go ahead, sorry. I was about to say it's probably one of the great teams uh, – of that of that era that no one really remembers. Oh yeah, certainly. And, and they they ended up getting what they wanted in a couple of years, but I there was a lot of I'm sure turmoil after a while, especially here in in '61. The AFL Championship game hangover was a real thing. Um, Bud Adams and Lou Rimkus started the year on bad terms. Bud Adams sent the team to Hawaii in the middle of training camp. Um, that doesn't and, sound bad, but it probably was. It, yeah, it, it's um like that might have been great, like in June or something like that. But Rimkus was like, we couldn't focus on football, seeing all the palm trees and probably uh, the women. I'm sure too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but We're having a luau. They, they they started one three and one, and Lou Rimkus was shown the door. Um, he was fired nine months after bringing the franchise a league title. Wally Lem, who was an assistant of Rimkiss, took over, and Houston took off. They rattled off nine straight wins. Every single game, they won by two scores or, or more. And actually, only two of the games, they won by two scores. The rest of them were by three or more. Yeah. Um, they had nine straight wins. Like I said, uh, oh, yeah, I already mentioned that part. My bad. And then um, they scored at least 27 points in each game. The offense was a cheat code, as the kids say. Blander yeah. ran away with the MVP. Um, he actually, he finished with 36 passing touchdowns. No bear has ever finished with 30 passing touchdowns ever. Like yeah. George Blanda did something in 1961, a Chicago bear has never done. And actually he held like the season record. Jurgensen tied him up. I think like the next year or something, or maybe even that year. Yeah. But it wasn't broken until Marino in 84. Really? That's which is wild to think. Yeah, I figured um, somebody in the 70s would like with Air Coriel or something would have figured that out. Yeah, like, you Dan would think F like I, I Dan figured Fouts. Dan Fouts would have done it. Yeah. But, um, um but his, I, I was gonna say like that that backfield with Blanda and Billy Cannon was just so explosive. Uh, incredible. And then you had Charlie Hennigan and Bill Groman at wide receiver. I mean, they were yeah. they were unstoppable. So what's crazy about George Blanda is that he was already over a decade into his football, like professional football career. He got drafted yeah. in 1949 and played basically like a decade with the Bears. Um, yeah. And like the AFL was kind of like his one song. Basically, yeah, which it really wasn't because he ended up playing like it lasted like 13 more years. Or yeah, he was the modern. Uh, he was like the 1960s Tom Brady, where he just played forever. He played so in he, four different decades. Yeah, he can claim that he played in the same league as Otto Graham and Joe Ferguson, who was like a starting quarterback with the Bills. Ferguson was a longtime 70s and 80s quarterback who finished his career in the 1990s. So he can basically say that 
his career on, basically overlaps with somebody that played with like Jeff George and somebody yeah. that overlapped with Otto Graham. Like that's how far like, I literally have. I love those things. Yeah. Like half of NFL. I just basically like took 1949 to 1950. Half that the, was, the NFL. <laughs> that was almost half the NFL's existence. George Blanda has kind of touched. Um, so that, I, I always think it's crazy. cool that like Aaron Rodgers and Jim McMahon. Now people are like, well, what's what's so big about them? Oh yeah, they were they, teammates with Brett Favre. They both they both backed up Brett Favre. So yeah, you had I a mean, guy that was drafted in 1982, and a yeah. guy that's still playing today. Yeah, well, I mean, you could Aaron Rodgers and Steve McMichael are also, I guess, teammate yeah. cousins. Teammates, yeah, teammate cousins, yeah, teammate. Yeah. Uh, uh, Eskimo brothers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I love doing those games because like, yeah. with players that play forever, like Tom Brady, played with Doug Flutie. Yeah. So yeah, Doug, yeah. Like Doug Flutie played in the god dang USFL. Like, yeah. Like, I and mean, then Tom Brady was uh, teammates with guys that are in their third year in the league right now. So yeah. it's just it's crazy, but uh. Go on to, you know, the title game. So there, there wasn't a lot to talk about. It was a pretty boring title game. Houston was clearly peaking at the time going in. Sid Gilman was still very confident. He projected that they were going to win. Um, Christmas Eve, it was not a sellout. It was in Balboa Stadium. Really sloppy game. Blanda and Cannon were the difference in the end. Although Blanda, not so much. Cannon ended up being the guy that won it again for uh, Houston. The game is actually more remembered for a heated exchange between Sid Gilman and the officials after the game. And Chuck Zeman, who uh, played for the Chargers, apparently wrestled a referee to the ground because he was, quote, roughing up Coach Gilman. I don't know whether to believe him or not, but like a referee roughing up a coach is crazy. And then the player going after the referee physically could you imagine That's, that nowadays? <laughs> yeah. Well, and like I said, the AFL brought entertainment value because Tra- Travis like Kelsey with, would do that. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but like the it's Taylor Swift told him to do it. But uh, it, it's one of those inter- like that, that's just another entertainment value that the AFL had because you had like fans nearly intercepting passes. Yeah. You had. Them playing in high school on the field. Balboa Stadium, like it was, you know, it seated thirty thousand state uh, people at the time, but now it's a high school stadium. Like you have all of the, it just it's still almost amateur hour, but you had great players mixed in. Like Billy Cannon's an all time player, but he played in like a league that was just so rough on its edges. Yes. And it's it's kind of funny to watch, and it, you could, but it's a league in its infancy. The NFL went through the same thing. It's kind of impressive the AFL got cleaned up as quickly as it did. Is, yeah, the NFL had teams, did. the NFL had teams folding after like two games in the twenties. Like you, it's honestly it's remarkable that it advanced as fast as it did. But you get to the nineteen sixty two season, and like you said, all of those teams are retained again. That they're brought back. And we brought up earlier the only teams that are struggling are the Raiders and the Titans, who both thankfully got saved. Attendance. Now, this is kind of the crazy thing because 61 
like I said, there was nothing crazy that happened going into the 61 season. Um, nothing wild. It was kind of a boring year. Well, I guess maybe watching Houston's offense wasn't boring, but the championship game wasn't good. But 62, like something happened that like the fans just started coming out. Attendance goes up to over 20,000 per team. Now that's a 20% increase, but that's being brought down by the Jets and the Raiders who were, you know, averaging four or 5,000 fans a game. So every team is above 20,000 fans right now, besides those two. In the 62 draft, not a wildly successful draft um, in terms of, you know, big names. John Haddle, who had a good career with San Diego, um, him and Lance Allworth, of course, were famous. Um, Mike Stratton was a Buffalo linebacker. Tom Sestick. Buffalo defensive tackle um, and Nick Bonacani, who was a part of the no name defense in Miami. Yep. He was drafted by Boston at the time because Miami didn't exist. Yep. Next um, episode. Yes. Cookie Gilchrist, um, a well-known oh. name in NFL history. He was a deserving MVP. He averaged 5.1 yards a carry 15 total touchdowns. And he was a rookie but he somehow didn't win rookie of the year. I don't know why. I think their racism probably played a little bit of a factor. Yeah, um, certainly. That's one thing that like a lot of pl- like a lot of black players found opportunity in the AFL because un- unfortunately they weren't getting the same opportunities in the NFL. There was almost like an unwritten rule where you know they weren't you know, granted the same opportunity to play certain positions or, you know, there had to be a quota on how many white players there were versus black nothing set in stone. And some teams were more progressive. Like I think if it were up to George Hallis and Vince Lombardi, I think they just wanted to put as many good players in the field as they could because all they cared about was winning. But like George Preston Marshall, like didn't want any black players. Mm -hmm. Uh, But going to Cookie Gilchrist, like he should have been in the NFL. Um, he was that good, but he's, he's on the bills and you go back and watch cookie Gilchrist. Unbelievably violent runner. Oh yeah. Oh, and, oh, back oh. In, and back in those days they were tackling. It was like watching Marshawn Lynch, but with a little bit more high end speed. So just think about that for a second. Like Marshawn oh. <laughs> was impossible to tackle. It usually took like, two or three guys to bring him down. But Marshawn didn't necessarily have like the jets to get away from like safeties and corners. This guy did. It was, it was a fun highlight tape to watch. Probably my favorite of the 1960s of any player. No kidding. All right. Well, I, I'll have to check him out actually. Yeah. He's um, awesome. The AFL finally eclipses over five yards per play. Um, they're starting to catch up to the NFL in that regard. So they're getting a little bit more explosive. Um, but the NFL is actually starting to pick up the passing attempts per game. So it's, it's, um, there's only less than four attempts in the game in the difference. Now it still comes down to the quarterbacks, the quarterbacks. Certainly. Yeah. Um, Houston once again, topped the Eastern division. Um, but not with the same dominance they had done the previous two years. They started the year with another new head coach. Um, and offensively, the Oilers still moved the ball and scored points, but they had like 48 
turnovers. They 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 turned over the ball like it was their religion. It was it was brutal. I don't know how they ended up winning as many games as they did because they like it seems like it if they sl- weren't scoring a, sl- a touchdown, they were you, turning the ball st- over. It's still a sloppy league, though. Yes. So, other teams are probably turning it over at the Do, same rate. Doing it the same. Are. Yeah. And when the other team isn't turning the ball over, they're probably punting. So um, that's how Houston was winning. And then we talked earlier. And I think this is really cool how this is where the episode is going to come down to. Dallas had been knocking on the door of contention for a couple years. They got to the NFL, or they, excuse me, they got to the title game behind an NFL style attack. They had Abner Hayes and McClinton um, uh, as he was a rookie um, in the backfield. And and both of them carried the load, but they had a journeyman quarterback, Len Dawson, who joined Dallas that year. He was overlooked and twice cut in the NFL. He was cut by Pittsburgh, who was awful. He was cut for Bobby Lane in Pittsburgh. And then he was cut in Cleveland. Um, and actually I remember him saying that he was in the locker room with Paul Brown one time and Paul Brown said, there's a new league starting. I wouldn't worry about it. They're not going to last. And where does Len Dawson end up in that league? Len Dawson showed the NFL why he should have stayed. He led the AFL in touchdown passes and yards per attempt in 1962. He was the perfect underdog for the situation. The Texans looked like they were going to fulfill their Cinderella story in the championship game. At halftime, they were up 17 to nothing. They used their ground control offense during a rainy afternoon and occasional but effective passes from Dawson to put them up by three scores at the break. But the championship DNA comes out of Houston in the second half. Blanda puts the team on his back. He ties it at 17 on Charlie Toller touchdown. And we go to overtime. The team, the team traded possessions, um, a few possessions in the first overtime. I did say the first overtime. And Blanda went to work late in that overtime period. Houston was moving the ball down the field. I think they had the ball in the 35-yard line until Bill Hall, a Kansas City linebacker, picks off Blanda and runs the ball back to around midfield. At the start yeah. of the second overtime, Len Dawson moves the chains on a toss to Jack Spikes, and then Spikes breaks a big run to put Dallas well in the field goal range. Tommy Brooker comes out in the, the field on the left hash to nail a 25-yard game winner to give Dallas and Lamar Hunt in the cornerstone rivalry that he wanted to build this league around their first title. Thank you for tuning in to the Old Souls Football Podcast. Next week, Neil and I break down Super Bowl Thirteen with a special guest.